I am what they call an intense competitor because sore loser doesn't sound as good if I can be honest, right? I'm the kind of person that any game that I play, any activity that I'm a part of, I always want to win. And so consequently, I oftentimes do not play games or do not do activities that I'm not familiar with. So like uh, I get invited to do a corn maze, hate it. I mean, who wants to go get stuck out somewhere where you don't know where it is, running around chasing stuff to find stuff? That's not for me. And yet we did it as a staff. Or let's do an escape room, right? Because who doesn't mind being locked in a room with a countdown going on, dealing with people who are probably, well, I don't need to go there, but I hate them. I hate them. And so oftentimes I play games that I know I know enough about or uh, am skilled at because I hate to lose. Now, this is terrible being a parent, of course. And so, you know, you get into moments where um, your kids get better than you on video games. They're better at strategy than you. And eventually you just find out you end up becoming the dad that just doesn't like to play games. And that's kind of where I am because I hate losing. And maybe you're that way too, but maybe you're not. Maybe you all just play well and give out participation trophies at all your parties. Don't invite me to it because I don't think everybody deserves a trophy. I want winners. I want winners. But I tend to be the kind of person that enjoys winning too much. I like to win an argument. I like to impose my will on an opponent. I like to be in charge. I like to be in control. And this probably sounds very unpastoral, but it's me. It's me. I grew up as the oldest. I was given a lot of responsibility, expected to set the pace for the rest. I only had one sister, but I was expected to do the right thing every time, right? I was held to a higher standard. I was asked to do things differently. And consequently, I kind of have this chip on my shoulder that I have to produce and perform right every time. And it works well in the American culture that we're a part of, if we're honest, right? We live in a world where might makes right. The boldest and the loudest are always in control. Strength and smarts give advantages to others that we can't get on our own. But if we are honest, if we looked at ourselves, we'd have to admit it is exhausting to live at that pace. So here's the tension this morning. Here's what we need to unpack. Are we out to get more or give more? Are we out to get more or give more? Because when it comes to our lives, we can either get more for ourselves or receive what God has to offer and give it away, it being our lives. A life of surrender as opposed to a life perhaps of selfishness. So welcome to week four, right? We've jumped into this series called Upside Down, and we've talked about how the ways of Jesus are counterintuitive. They're upside down to what we may expect or experience in the world that we're a part of today. But this invitation is an invitation to a blessed life, a happy life. But when we define happiness, what we're talking about is our personal contentment and understanding in light of who we are in Jesus. And so Jesus is our definition, and Jesus is the one who clarifies and identifies who we are when we live this life of happiness. So we're in this uh, conversation about the Beatitudes. Jesus is in one of his most famous messages where he is on a mountainside speaking directly to the people of Israel, and he starts to talk about what we call the Beatitudes, the blessings, the happiness that we should have. And so in verse 5 of chapter 5, Jesus says this phrase, Blessed are the meek, 
for they will inherit the earth. Meekness, inheritance, the earth. It sounds like a decent upgrade if you think about it for a moment, but the truth of the matter is, this is counterintuitive to how we approach most of our life. When we hear the word meekness, oftentimes people equate meekness to weakness, don't they? Meekness to weakness. It's not about blind submission or rolling over and taking one for the team. It's a different understanding than what we think about. It's, it's not the introverted kid in the middle, middle school dance that's hugging against the wall saying, please don't pick me, please don't pick me, right? Meekness is actually something very different. Now, it's synonymous with humility, but humility in and of itself does not capture the very nature or the heart of what meekness is about. If we were to define meekness, we would want to say it this way, that meekness is strength under control. Strength under control. The idea behind meekness or being meek is that we learn to wait, to be still before God and others. It's a non-self-asserting posture. Think of it like a horse. Any horse of any size and strength has incredible amounts of power, but you place a bit in its mouth and all the strength and magnitude of a horse is brought to a halt because it learns to submit, it learns to, to surrender to just this simple piece of metal. It guides, it directs, it moderates the horse's control. And this is the upside-down upside tension of the way of Jesus. And this may be the very reason some of us never surrender to Jesus. In a world that is so much about striving to get more, more fame, more power, more opportunity, more control, more whatever, the invitation from Jesus is to give your life away. Let me, let me define meekness uh, maybe in an opposite direction. The antithesis of meekness is fruitless striving or assertion. Let me summarize it this way. Prideful assertion. It's when we get into a conversation or a conflict or some sort of dynamic, and what we do is we begin to press our will as hard as we can. Maybe we're well-intended. Maybe it's our personality. But we live in a culture where driven people drive people crazy. We want to accomplish much. We want to produce much. And as driven people who accomplish, who produce, who grab more control, influence, fame, and insert our will on the world around us, as Christians, it should begin to alarm us. When it comes to following Jesus, this is true, that assertion and meekness do not mix. They don't go hand in hand. They don't speak of the maturity or growth. Like oil and water, they can't mix. You cannot live like Jesus and assert yourself as the center of every story. Maybe we express it in our anger or our disgust. But think about it this way. To get more influence, we often raise our voice. To get our way, we often fight harder. Meekness calls to less of me and more of Jesus in me. Meekness demands my surrender over my own self-seeking. 
So in this series, we begin to talk about what happiness is about and what Jesus is offering. And we've used uh, this graphic to kind of explain a word picture. And we start at the beginning with the idea of that we have nothing to offer. We understand uh, that this is the foundation of our relationship. And last week, we began to talk about how we must mourn our struggle and our sin before God. We're spiritual beggars. We have nothing to offer God. But it's this meekness that begins to catalyze us towards, once again, understanding our place, our identity in Christ. And when we begin to recognize that this growth, this catalyst that's beginning in us through the power of the Spirit, we begin to recognize that there is an inward battle in each of us, that it begins to emerge, and we will either embrace meekness over meanness. Meekness or meanness. Will we let the Spirit of God transform us, or will we still continue to put our thoughts, our will, our way as the definition of what's happening in our lives? Uh, Paul, an author in the New Testament, he writes to a group of people in Colossae, and he begins to talk about this inward battle between the Holy Spirit and our own personal will. And he says this in Colossians 1.29, To this end I strenuously contend, With all the energy Christ so powerfully works within me. He's trying to allude to the idea that if Christ is in us, if God's spirit is in us, that there is a fight, not against God, but a fight against self, that we would surrender our lives so that the spirit would ignite and catalyze a transformative work in every one of us. It is meekness that ultimately fuels our growth in Jesus. Meekness is like liquid energy feeding our soul's strength. It's like a combustion process in our engine. It is the fuel that ignites the movement of God in us and through through us. Meekness is not the pistons, it's not the spark plug, but it's the fuel that begins to ignite God's spirit, God's growth in us. So when it comes to meekness, we approach life with Jesus and others. We begin to realize that in meekness, I yield my spirit so that God's spirit may lead my life. In meekness, I surrender my will so that God's will may be done. In meekness, I even quiet my voice so that God's voice may be heard. Because see, assertion of self points to promoting and boasting myself. But meekness of self points to a humility of surrendering ourselves, so that we might boast and promote God's work in us. So let's read this verse again. It's simple, but here's what it says. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Inheritance is an incredibly powerful thought. It's a concept that I think echoes in us, that we realize that to inherit is oftentimes to receive money or property or whatever as an heir at the death of a previous holder, leader, family member. Now, honestly, when I think of inheritance in the world that we're a part of, unfortunately, it gives a bad taste in my mouth. How many times have you heard about families that are torn apart or arguing or or wrestling over the stuff that is to be handed down? 
But that's not the identity that Jesus is pointing towards. Jesus is not pointing towards a group of followers that when their life is given to God, that they would somehow fight over stuff to have a place in the kingdom. Jesus, when he talks about inheritance, speaks of the context of what's happening in Jesus' day. See, if one of your family members, usually in Jesus' day, the father were to pass away, yes, there would be some things handed down to you. You may get the the three-bedroom, two-bath house. You may get the property around it. You may get dad's favorite two-hump camel over his one-hump camel, whatever. There, There would be stuff that was handed out, but the emphasis was the relationship and the identity that was given. See, when those before you passed away, you received something that you did not earn on your own. Some of it was stuff, but most of it was your standing. That the trust, the integrity, the legacy, the power of the family name and influence in the community was therefore handed to you. And so Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are meek, for you will inherit what only your heavenly Father can give you. Your standing in eternity, your understanding of forgiveness, the experience of a full expression of love, to know that we are sons and daughters of the King. And because of what God has done, His work, His strength, His might, His will, we gain access to it. We inherit all that the kingdom has to provide. And it's interesting because what we think of oftentimes is the stuff Jesus is emphasizing a relationship. I like how it's said in the message. The message is a paraphrase of scripture, which means it shares the concept of a verse where a translation goes through and explains or begins to go word for word in expressing how a passage may read. Here's what it says from the message in Matthew 5. You are blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that cannot be bought. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they inherit the earth. Does it mean land? In some ways, that's what the nation of Israel would have heard. But what Jesus is communicating is something grander than just land itself. Matter of fact, the end of this verse is actually pointing to Psalm chapter 37. If you want to, you can jump there for a moment. But here's what's happening. Jesus is giving this portrait of this upside down world. And so he references a blessing, knowing that the nation of Israel was called to be a blessing, even when it went through its time of slavery and brought out of slavery, came together at a mountain so that God would say, these are the commands, these are the values that our community will live out as the nation of Israel lived out being a blessing in the world that it was a part of it had an anticipation of a promised land that it would inherit and now Jesus is on a mountain saying okay let me just remind you of those values that were given the journey we've been on as a nation this is what the fulfillment of this happiness blessing is about Psalm 37 the psalmist writes a conversation And in it, he is pressing into what does it mean to live a life of meekness before God. Verse 1 is a challenging of do not fret or do not worry. 
It's an issue of trust and control. Uh, verse 3 begins to talk about trusting God and learn to do good, do the things of God. Verse 5 begins to say, commit your ways to the Lord and trust the ways of the Lord. Verse 7 cautions them to be still before God. And verse 8 challenges them to refrain from anger and wrath, which is ultimately an expression of control and lack of trust. What's the psalmist doing? If you read the entire verses, you'll realize that as you're reading through that chapter, what's happening is there is a group of us, real-life people, who look at the world around us and we see people who get ahead, who cut corners. They steal, they rob, they do everything they can to, to get for themselves what they can in the moment. They're not concerned about who they step on. They're not concerned about how they get things done. They're not concerned. As long as their will, their way, their, their idea gets done, that's what they want. And as people of God, they're saying, God, this is not fair. Why is it those who cheat and destroy and do everything out of selfishness seem to get ahead and we're left over here? The psalmist says, but be careful. You may see what's happening in the world, but those who grab and get what they want in the moment, they have all they're ever going to have. If we could learn how to trust, how to not fret, how to not grow and be angry, but learn to trust God in even the temporary of circumstances, we can learn to live a life that is concerned about the eternal. Who we are with God in our lives. God's purpose God's will, God's way. It's, it's the difference between being the kind of person that keeps buying a lottery ticket every day hoping that God's going to fix their financial problems rather than surrendering their will or their wallets to God. Or it's the kind of person that goes and chases one more relationship because the vows that they made don't seem to be fulfilling anymore. Or it's the kind of person that in, in the middle of a moment, in the middle of an opportunity, they push, press, get louder and press harder because they want their way. Jesus is alluding to the very nature of who God has called the nation of Israel to be when he says, blessed are the meek for they'll inherit the earth. Because Psalm 37 verse 11 says this, but the meek will inherit the land and they will enjoy peace and prosperity. Now, now, I imagine being in that crowd and I'm thinking, here it comes. Here's the upgrade. We're going to first class. This is what we wanted. Jesus is going to take over his might, his power, his will. A new kingdom is going to come and we're going to be sitting in the front. First class, front row, VIP. Yep, that's me. But peace and prosperity are the foundation of this conversation. And it's not found in its property. It's found in the person of Jesus. It's found in our identity that knowing that we are loved, knowing that we are forgiven, knowing that we are created for a life of surrender and sacrifice is what ultimately brings us towards a life of happiness. So instead of putting up on our mantle more of me, we begin to think about and focus on the things of heaven. Those who would have heard this happiness would have understood the promised land that was coming, but Jesus almost says it this way, hey, you may be concerned about attractive land, why don't we be concerned about the will of God for the entire world? 
What would it look like for every creature, every nation, every people to come to know this love, this contentment, this happiness found in the forgiveness of sins, true love and acceptance before God and life for eternity? The Apostle Paul, when he pulls back to talk to this church in Corinth, he reminds them that we don't boast about who we are, but we boast about everything in Jesus because everything that we have and all that we are is from Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, he he didn't even embrace a life after Jesus until Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But when he opens his letter to the church in Jerusalem in James chapter 1, he talks about how we must allow the word of God that's been planted in us to be humbly accepted because it's when we begin to surrender, the word of God begins to take root in us. And the word of God has the power to save us. So think about this for a moment. In a life that wants to gain more, I want more stuff. I want more of what I want. I ultimately want more of me. When I get more stuff, more of what I want, more of me, I'm prone to boast about what I have. I'm prone to boast about what I've gotten. I'm prone to boast about my own work. I'm prone to have what I can only hold. So what am I promoting? Me. Who am I promoting? Me. How am I benefiting? I'm getting all that I can and all that I want for me all of the time right now. That's not who we want to be. But when I give my life, when I give more, I surrender my life to God so that God can work in me and God can impact the world around me. I am less concerned about me and I am more concerned about others. When God is at work in me and the relationships around me, I'm prone to boast about what God is doing in my world and what God is doing in the relationships around me. When I give more, I receive all that God has for me, but I also share to the world around me all that God has given me. Who am I promoting then? God and his work in me. Who am I promoting ultimately? God's work and God's will to the world that we're a part of. But how do I benefit? I see God's love. I see God's forgiveness. Not just impacting my life, but beginning to shape every relationship around me and transforming the world around me for God's glory, for God's honor. So maybe that's why we summarize this statement of the Beatitude this way. Happy are the humble, for they receive only what God can give. Now, maybe you're struggling to get some handles on this message like I have all week and wrestling, how do I need to to, uh, apply this? I mean, can I be a good person and still pursue my own interests and thoughts? I mean, are you asking me just to ignore how God shaped me and throw it all out the window? No, not completely. But this question can oftentimes rub against us. It may be the very reason why we would not want to surrender our life to Jesus. I mean, think about the question we asked at the beginning, right? Are we out to get more or to give more? I mean, I think we can find it in different times by the people around us. Do people bristle in our leadership? (laughs) Do people struggle around our influence? Or do we have a life-giving sense that when we come to the table, that God is ultimately at work raising up people around us? 
I think if we're going to humbly accept the word of God planted in us, we have to realize that there's a lot of things we can't boast about. I can't boast about my past because I know that my sins and my struggles uh, have been numerous in my past, but I can boast about a God who takes my sin and removes it as far as the east is from the west. I know that I should consider everything of my past and all my accomplishments and all my accolades, I should consider them trash when it comes to ultimately knowing who Jesus is and his saving love. I know I can't even add a single hour to my day or a hair to my head, even though I wish I could. But I boast about a God who cares for me more than the lilies of the field or the birds of the air. Meekness is seen in our humility, not in our assertion of self. Not promotion or boasting about what we've accomplished or what we do and achieve. But as we receive all that is ours because of Jesus... We begin to boast about how God is changing us and transforming the world around us. Well, we were kind of working on this message this week. Garen, who's teaching today in Urbana, wrote down this thought. And I just, I think it's something we've got to wrestle with today. He said this, striving to display meekness, which is what we want to do, right? Striving to display meekness, mourning your sin and understanding we have nothing to bring to the table is useless talk if we have not placed our faith in Jesus. Our inheritance of the earth and all that is God's is tied to our status in simply being a child of God's. Everything that we are, our fulfillment, our identity, is placed in knowing the person of Jesus and being heirs of his so let me share it this way from a, a verse from prophet, the prophet Jeremiah. He spoke to the nation of Israel, and he spoke of a legacy and a direction that they should have, and he, he said this. This is what the Lord says. Let us not boast, let, let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this that they have the understanding to know me. For I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Maybe this should be our prayer, that the work of God in us and through us because of Jesus would show up in such a way as it did in the nation of Israel that we would trust God, his will and his way, more so than the promotion of ourselves and the longing for what we want. Let's move to our time of response. I think for many of us, when we think about meekness, we're not short on examples that we could use throughout Scripture. I mean, from the early pages of Scripture, you begin to see someone like Moses, who's called up by God to lead the nation of Israel out of slavery, but he, he doesn't speak well publicly. And God says, no, I, I want to use you. And he leads the nation of Israel out of Egypt. <laughs> or you think about this shepherd boy, right? Taking care of dad's flocks. He's asked to take lunch to his brothers who are at war. And as he does, he realizes that there's an enemy that stands before the nation of Israel and no one wants to fight this enemy. But he's so convinced that what God might do, he 
takes this slingshot and a couple stones and he goes out and he slays Goliath. Ultimately, there's this transformative work in the man of David that becomes the king of Israel. You can think about Rahab, an unlikely hero who uh, is known for more of a life of sin, but when she interacts with two spies of Israel, she recognizes what God's doing and provides shelter for them, ultimately bringing provision for them so that the walls of Jericho would one day fall. Or maybe you just simply think of Mary, the mother of Jesus, knowing her reputation and her life would be radically changed to give birth to the Son of God. But she says, God, I'm yours. Use me. There's a lot more examples that you could go through throughout Scripture that just say these are moments of meekness whether it's Gideon, whether it's Ehud, whoever it may be. But none of them compare to the picture of Jesus. Jesus, who considered equality with God, his position with God, not to be held on for himself, but he gave it up. Took on the very form of a servant, taking on flesh, God in flesh. Lived a sinless, blameless life as a servant in humanity. One night he's sitting with his friends and he's having dinner celebrating the deliverance of the nation of Israel. And as they leave, I think the passage literally says in one of the gospels, after they sang a hymn, they went out to pray. I think there's some interesting dialogue there about how oftentimes we close with a song and then go back to the way we used to live life. But maybe that's another message for another day. And Jesus begins to pray and a crowd of people begin to show up and they arrest him. Peter, always ready to fight for Jesus at any moment, grabs a sword and jumps over and cuts off one of the men's ears. You would thought Jesus would have said, hey, thanks, Peter. Thanks for having my back. But Jesus pauses Peter, who grabs the ear and does a miracle in the moment. He surrenders himself. He's arrested. He's beaten. He's put before a group of people that it doesn't matter what he answers. He's going to be punished no matter what. Ultimately, it puts him before a king, a leader. Are you who they say they are? Are you who they say you are? And he just looks to Pilate and says, well, who do you say that I am? Meekness. I often wonder what the world would be like if Jesus just would have called time out and called the angels from heaven just to, let's just wipe this thing out, leave a big burn mark right here on Jerusalem and let the whole world know that God was here. He didn't. Because the scorched earth doesn't speak to his sacrifice love. And so he surrenders himself. He dies a death on a cross where a criminal hurls insults at him, where a crowd jeers him and taunts him, where soldiers fillet his body and he says these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's meekness. And it's very different than how many of us, specifically me, approach life. Jesus said it this way. He said, um, take the bread. 
It's my body broken for you. Take and eat. In the same way, he took a cup. He said, this is my blood poured out for you. Take and drink. This meal that the nation of Israel celebrated every year because of the deliverance out of Egypt, Jesus now defines and said, no, this will be a new covenant. That his body would be broken, his blood would be shed, that the atonement for our sin, the forgiveness that would be required over the wrath of God would be paid for in his life. And now, as the early followers of Jesus did it, so we do it to remind ourselves that our identity, our inheritance is not by our work or our effort, but by the merit of a God who loves us more than we could ever understand and know. And now we inherit all that is his. There are a few responses that we probably need to make today. I'm, many of you may be using your app and maybe you're making a decision like baptism. It's one of the things I love about baptism in scripture is that when we humbly accept the word planted in us, we respond because we know this is what Jesus set for us as an example. This is what is commanded of us as obedient followers of Jesus. Not on tradition or not on what uh, others may do, but because it's the precedence of what the word of God requires for us. Some of us today maybe are going to share a prayer request and it takes great trust to share with others what God's doing in our lives or maybe what we feel God isn't doing in our lives. But to share that with our elders and our staff, to know that we're pausing in prayer and just saying, God, work in this moment is, it's a picture of surrender. Maybe it's about signing up to be in a group or leading a group or serving somewhere. But today, when we talk about meekness, the high mantle of our own personal happiness has no place unless it's submitted to our pursuit of God first. And maybe we continue in our response time now even too with giving through our offering. Our finances, whether we use the Give app, whether we use the Give boxes here, and we respond by recognizing that the will of God, the mission of God requires all of our lives surrendered to him. And so as we give through the church, there's an opportunity to bless the world and advance what God is doing in our community and the world around us. Friends, I'm not sure how this one little verse impacts you, but it has wrecked my life. It has been difficult this week to look into the, the mirror of my own spirit and realize that um, I'm not fighting my own spirit. I'm often fighting God's. So what would it be like for us out of the meekness of Jesus to begin to look at the relationships around us and pump the brakes and just ask, are we out to gain more or to give more? Because we often convince ourselves that we are giving and ultimately we're getting. Why don't we stand? Why don't we respond? And let's declare the goodness of God and the Savior that we give our lives to.